from Quite the Thing Media. Hi everybody and welcome to Quite the Interview. My name is Jack Shaw and we are part of Quite the Thing Media. Just before we start, I'd like to give a shout out to our hosts, Captivate. We are recording on Squadcast and this was arranged on Matchmaker. Today we are covering a topic that generally isn't full of laughs, but uh, Claire Sanema got in touch with me and we're going to have a chat about true crime today. Claire, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Jack? Yes, I am great. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I'm a big true crime fan. It has become such a massive, it's not even a niche anymore. It used to be a niche. Like you were a little bit strange if you were into murder and serial killers. Netflix, I think, is blowing the door open on it. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. So I'm a producer for 48 Hours on CBS um, and we cover... True crime every Saturday night um, on CBS. We look at one case, and I've been doing that for about seven years. And then this year, I launched uh, my true crime podcast called Final Days on Earth. And so I'm true crime all the time. Do I tell us a little bit about the the case that you cover in your podcast? Because as far as I know, it's local to you, and it's maybe got a little bit of a, a place in your heart, maybe definitely true. The The story that I cover for my first season is the life and death of Damien Hurd. And Damien was a college wrestler from Texas who went to college in Colorado. Um, and he went to a party one night his freshman year, and he disappeared from that party and was never seen alive again. And so my podcast looks at uh, the final days of his life and for clues into why his life ended and and just really goes on an investigative journey. One of the questions that I ask everybody is why they picked a topic. So I think it's pretty clear, but why did you pick true crime? And was it something that you've enjoyed for many years? And the job that you work in just now, was that like a, a dream job for you, something that you really enjoy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was one of those people that was always fascinated by by true crime, you know, even as a child, we went on a family vacation to San Francisco and we all got to pick something that we wanted to do. And I wanted to go to Alcatraz and see the prison out there. So, you know, that was exciting to me. And I remember the the book that I bought from the prison gift shop, you know, about different prisoners who had lived in uh, Alcatraz. I don't know why it's been a fascination of mine, but, you know, I'm certainly not alone. I think true crime draws in a lot of of people's interests just in the, you know, worst things that, that people can do to each other. Well, that is it. Like I said, the questions that I will be asking you later are a little bit silly, a little bit daft, but in no way am I having a laugh at the the misfortune of people, but misfortune and people's, people dying, let's be honest, it really has a draw for people. Do you have any idea, maybe why psychologically people are so interested in other people's misfortunes and death, basically? Yeah, you know, I think it's one of those things that death, we can't fully understand, and so we're going to be drawn to it. You know, it's that 
that next place that we can't go, um, you know, until you're there and then you can't talk about it. So I think it's natural that people are going to be interested in death and all the different ways that our lives, you know, intersect with death. I kind of think that when it comes to serial killers, for example, because they are so otherworldly almost that you can't you can't empathize like people lots of people have empathy and they can put themselves in other people's shoes but you just can't put yourself in the mind of a serial killer basically and that's why i think i've been interested in it for for a long time basically since wikipedia started (laughs) on the internet and you could just suddenly click and read things and sort of fall down that rabbit hole that was never a thing until I was maybe late teens, perhaps, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago when the internet sort of blew up, and I suppose that sort of took me down that path. But I'm very much interested in in true crime. Have you got a favourite joke about crime, true crime, or just a favourite joke in general? Yeah, you know, I do have a favourite joke about true crime, but if I told it to you, I'd have to kill you. (laughs) There we are. (laughs) I quite like that one, that's not bad. And... What do you think everybody knows or think they know about about true crime? Like, what are the the top three things? Let's go. For? Okay, well, giving me top three. Well, I would say the first thing that everyone thinks they know about true crime is that the husband did it. It's always a family member. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that's usually like the first. If you're an armchair detective, if you're somebody just you know dabbling in it, you you think, oh, it's it's got to be the husband, and you know you wouldn't be wrong most of the time. That that's not a bad a bad way to go. Um, you know, I think other people um, think that a killer always leaves something behind, right? Um, you know, I think that's a, a common That's very one. much from the movies, you would imagine. Yeah. Yes. They don't want to get caught. Why would you leave clues, you know? But right. there are those couple of cases where people did, you know, and it becomes that becomes the thing that people focus on. Yeah. Yeah, and, and maybe the other thing is that um, you know, everyone that everyone thinks they, they know about true crime is you know, they they know how to do the police's job, right? I think everybody thinks that that they know, oh, well, this is what I would do if I was, you know, if I was the detective. Well, that is it. I suppose that sort of neatly leads us on to my first question then, Claire. When you watch a true crime documentary, is it just me or do you constantly think of how you would have done things better? Better than the criminal themselves? Better than the criminal, yes. Like that most of these questions are coming from if you were the bad guy in this situation, to be honest. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I because I also think about how I would have done the true crime documentary better, because I'm I'm <laughs> also a producer. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it it goes both ways. But yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we with the benefit of hindsight, we see these dumb criminals and the mistakes that they make. And we're like, you got to be kidding me. You know, you don't go to Walmart at 2 a.m. and buy a shovel to bury the body, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You don't go get your murder kit, you know, at 4 a.m. using your own debit card. And, you know, you're caught on camera and you have a financial trail. But so many people do that, you know, and I think that uh, plays into the fact of, you know, this is a, a panic situation. And, yeah, if they were thinking clearly, you know, they probably wouldn't have killed someone to begin with. So they're going to make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. So as a as a producer, then do you sit and watch? Do you watch a lot of true crime, or is that we would call it in Scotland a busman's holiday, basically where you 
do you try and watch other things because your job is so much involved in, in true crime or is it a passion and you're really involved in it? Yeah, I kind of oscillate between the two. You know, when I first started the job, I was true crime, you know, fanatic. And so I watched everything that came out true crime. I was reading true crime books and I was working in it. And so I was just very immersed. But you can only do that for so long. And so the the joke, running joke in, in our house is, you know, my husband asks me, what do you want to watch tonight? And I always say something lighthearted, you know, because I don't want to watch true crime at night anymore. Whenever I watch it, it's not to relax. It's literally to sharpen my skills. It's to catch up on what's going on in the industry. You know, it's, it's work for me, but it's a work that I enjoy. And do you have a favorite Netflix true crime documentary that you would point people towards? Oh man, there's so many of them out there that are really good. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's a whole category now, right? But I mean, Mindhunter is great. Um, you know, there's, of course, uh, Making a Murderer is a classic. Uh, that's really good. I enjoyed the one that was on Ted Bundy um, recently. Yeah, the tapes. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there's there's no shortage on on any you you're, take your choice of, of streaming platform or, or cable or network television and you can find uh, true crime to fill your appetite. There seems to be, well, you will hear a lot of criminals saying that, fuck the police. But if they really wanted to get rid of the police, surely the best way to do that would be um, stop doing crimes. So they're kind of in a, they're kind of stuck in a loop, these guys. Yeah, it's very true, you know, that the police won't chase you if you don't commit crimes, right? So that's that's sort of the um the idea behind it, but you know, a lot of times you can't you know, they can't help themselves, you know. If, if um if everyone who thought about the consequences, you know, um then I don't think they would commit murder, right? So I that's one of the, you know, we talk about this being a serious subject, but we can talk about it in a in a lighthearted way, you know, we we say you know, we laugh so we don't cry, you know, because it's it's so sad, but you have to keep your sense of humor about you or else you'll just go into a depression if, if this is what you do for a living. So we, um, you know, people in the industry, we we always say, gosh, it would have been so much easier if they would have just gotten a divorce, you know, have they, have they never heard of a divorce <laughs> attorney? You know, instead they kill each other. You know, you kill somebody over money, which is super common, right? You kill someone over love, you kill them over money, or you kill them over some type of rage, right? But usually it's it's love or money. And, you know, the ironic thing is, vast majority of these people will get caught, they'll go to prison, they won't have access to any money, they'll be using postage stamps, you know, for their currency, and, you know, can't even pick out their own underwear. So, you know, you lose everything that you thought you might gain by committing murder, but people don't think that way. Speaking about the whole love angle, that is very common. The last Netflix documentary I watched would have been American Murder the Family Next Door. And you mentioned it earlier. It totally was the husband. Again, that's the first thing that I thought watching that documentary was that guy's acting a little bit weird. And that's when you could come as a psychologist. That's the Chris Watts case, right? That's the Chris Watts case? Yeah, he murdered not only his wife, but his two children. That's right. Fucking horrible. Like a really yeah. horrible case. And the most disturbing part I thought was the, the admission. Um, that was recorded when he was just telling you so coldly that he put his two little girls in the back. His wife was already dead and drove out and done what he'd done. And he said something along the lines of, 
I don't know why I done it. I, I didn't need to do it. Well, if you didn't need to do it, what like two children? And do you think when children are involved, that's when people get really, really angry? Because I'm getting angry just thinking about this guy. I would chop him up into tiny little pieces. Like that, that's what I would do. But capital punishment again is probably something that is a little bit of an iffy subject, depending on where you come from. You come from Texas, is that right? I do come from Texas. Yes. Is capital punishment still? A thing is it's still common how often does it oh happen it's in alive and well it's alive and well in texas um me personally i'm not a proponent of capital punishment but it is extremely popular in texas yeah as um, a difficult one because I, I do think that an eye for an eye is very much something that belongs in the past but that chris watts guy i would have no qualms flicking the switch or pressing the injection button on him does that is that just because of the emotion that I'm feeling right now just because there's children involved and taking a step back should he then be punished by actually spending the rest of his life in the situation that he is is that that more of a punishment basically yeah you know I think you're right I a lot of times that's that's what I say when people ask me why I'm not in favor of capital punishment. I say death is too easy for people like that, you know? So, I mean, that's just my opinion. But um, I also think that, um, you know, with capital punishment, there's a chance that you can get it wrong. And of then you know, there's, there's no take backs, right? And there's been multiple cases in Texas and, you know, across the country where posthumously they've proven, you know, that this person did not commit this crime or likely did not get a fair trial or, you know, and we've already killed them. So two wrongs don't make a right. And, you know, I don't think it's something that we should play God with and, and choose, you know, who lives and dies. And um, for me that, you know, I, I'm comfortable with life in prison and life without parole and, you know, those sorts of um, ultimate punishments. But I see definitely where the death penalty comes into the conversation and why people feel really passionately about it. You know, I think that their perspective is, is valid too, especially victims, families, you know, that want that. I, I can understand why they would feel like an eye for an eye is the only, you know, justice. I used to watch Scooby-Doo when I was younger. And do you think that that has bred a bunch of people around about my age? I'm 36. Because let's be honest, that's what Scooby-Doo was, trying to figure out the crime, and there was always a logical... That's why I kind of loved Scooby-Doo, because there was ghosts, there were scary yeah. things. But at the end, there was a logical reason behind it. They figured it out through detective work. Do you think that has honestly had an impact on people my age? Sure, yeah. You loving know, a true catchy, crime now? Yeah. A catchy song. You got, you know, <laughs> Scooby-Doo, where are you? You can't get it out of your head, right? And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's amazing that we had children running around solving kidnappings and murders and, you know, we, we made a show out of it. So there you go. <laughs> Why did they never phone the police? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. No one told them about 911, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose speaking about this is maybe more of a serious question. Like you will hear people say the perfect crime is one that you get away with. Surely the perfect crime is where you get someone else charged with it, which <laughs> has probably happened in these execution cases in, in Texas where people have been falsely charged, executed, and the criminal is, is still out there doing what they do. 
Yeah. No, it's. I think that's a dream of many criminal minds, the idea that they would commit a crime and then frame someone else to have them take the blame because, you know, the truth is most crimes, you know, are going to be solved and they're going to be investigated. And so if you don't have somebody else dependent on, you know, it's probably going to come home to you. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's sort of the ideal situation for a criminal is to get to do the crime that they they have the uh, desire to do, but have someone else, you know, take the fall for it. Yes. And how common do you think it is that police are under pressure? The political pressure from above to hit a certain amount of convictions, X, Y, and Z. How happy do you think some police are when somebody just admits to something? And even if the police don't really believe them, can they just take that off and it adds 1% onto their conviction rate? Do you think that is common or is that something that I have maybe seen on the wire, for example? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's pretty <laughs> uncommon. Um, right, okay, it does cool. happen. Yeah, it definitely does happen, but I do think that's uncommon. That's probably in the the very small percentage of, of things that happen. You know, I mean, I work with a lot of, um, you know, police officers and the vast majority of them are very, you know, stand up people and p- total professionals and, you know, really care about their job. But like anybody, right, there's like any profession, there's always going to be bad apples and there's always going to be um, people who take the easy way out. And so, you know, that's, that's just human nature. Um, but, but I, I think for the most part, it's pretty rare to have, to have a, a crime that is actually, um, you know, we actually successfully frame someone else for the crime and, and pull the wool over the, the police's eyes, but it does happen. Yeah. Again, that's probably just from watching the wire. <laughs> yeah. Think about how smart that criminal has to be. They not only have to commit the crime, get away with it. They have to lay a false trail for the police (laughs) and then get the police to take that bait and then, you know, have it never fall apart. And in the process of laying this false trail, they don't do anything that, you know, turns attention back on themselves. So that would have to be a a highly adept, you know, criminal right there. And do you think that true crime documentaries then are, might be making people better at crime? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think they could be. You know, we always um, talk about, gosh, if if they just watched our show, they'd know what not to do, you know, because people uh, make the same mistakes a lot of times. So, yeah, I mean, I think if um, it's a scary thought, but the idea that, yeah, there's a a super criminal out there uh, with a bunch of TV screens watching all the different documentaries thinking, okay, here's the the do not do list and here's the, the do list, you know, so... Yeah, that it definitely could give a blueprint to the the very um, uh, studious criminal, I guess. Yeah, the first thing that I would always do would be uh, buy shoes that were far too big for me, and maybe that's because of the Night Stalker documentary I just watched recently. But I would buy a size fourteen, and then they would be thinking, "This guy's massive." No, that's really smart. That's really smart, and I can think of several cases. Um, you know, that are open cases right now where they have strange uh, pieces of evidence like that, that they feel like don't match anything. And, you know, they actually believe, you know, in this uh, case that I'm, I'm talking about from Texas, that the killer might have had like law enforcement background because of how um, good they were at concealing 
their identity and the police think laying a false trail for what, you know, they might actually look like. And, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty smart, you know, scary, smart. You, you mentioned that. How often is it a police officer that is the killer? Because off the top of my head, I can think of one case and I can't even remember the guy's name. Well, the Golden State Killer is probably one of the most famous ones. Um, he was he was a p- former police officer, um, and then you know eventually left that job and continued killing uh, women um, in California. But it it is again it's extremely rare, but it does happen. Um, there's a case that I had looked at um, in Texas of a, a police officer who's actually out of Austin who had um, had a mistress. And he had gotten her pregnant. And so as an active police officer, he goes out and gets several uh, criminals. One of them is a gang member and recruits them to kill his pregnant uh, girlfriend and pays them and gives them burner phones and gives them all these instructions about, you know, every time you use this phone, you need to drive an hour, you know, away from your house and make the call. So eventually, whenever they you know, tie this together. Triangulation. Towers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so he really thought, you know, that he was covering his tracks and eventually everybody, um, you know, started talking. And um, But he did successfully have his uh, pregnant girlfriend killed, which is awful. Um, but this police officer was was later found. He fled to Bali, uh, but he was found in, in Indonesia and, and extradited back to the U.S. And... Um, you know, he ended up pleading guilty to to solicitation, capital murder. There was a show on here that my girlfriend used to watch where they would put people into teams, basically, and they would fake a bank robbery. Okay. They would let the teams try to run away, and they would have a real, well, former police officers, like a former team of highly trained individuals trying to hunt them down and find them. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, so they caught most of them within 48 hours, and is that still the number that police look for? Like, within 48 hours, the trails, it starts to get harder and harder and harder after that. Is that Again, is that something that I've just seen on the television? No, that's that's accurate. The first 48 hours are critical in any crime, any police investigation, uh, because that's when, you know, the trail's going to be the hottest. That's when the information's going to be the best. Um, that's your best chance of, of solving a crime. And so, you know, like with my podcast, that's what made this case so difficult for Damien Hurd, because he's missing for four days before they find his body. So by the time they start their investigation, really, those 48 hours of gone twice over, you know, and so and so they lost a lot of really good um, investigative time and a lot of leads uh, just because time had passed. So that's what cr- time makes crime really hard to solve. That's definitely true. And is it much easier nowadays with technology, like simple things like phone towers? Does that make things easier for the police? Because yes, my first sort of true crime passion was serial killers. And yeah. it was like the the best in inverted commas. You know, your Bundys, your Damers, your John Wayne Gacy's, yep. your BTKs, Green Rivers. Really obsessed with them. Are these guys still kicking about nowadays? But they've just had to get a lot smarter because the heyday seemed to be 
eighties, basically, when there was there was no phones. Yeah, the the cell phone, yeah, that you carry around is is just an unbelievable repository of information about your life and everywhere you've been and everything that you do. Um, you know, for most criminals, the cell phone is their undoing. Um, you know, what what happens in a lot of cases is that um, the criminal gets smart and they turn off their cell phone and they leave it somewhere. But that in itself is an indication because guess what? They don't they don't think to do that randomly and for weeks and months before the crimes. They do it only when the crimes are committed. So that becomes a trail because then the police say, wow, every time they turned off their cell phone, a murder happened, you know? <laughs> so it, it, I mean, it's really true. It, it, it's crazy how it works, but you know, it, it tells the story either way. Um, so it's, it's really hard to, I mean, you'd have to be, if you're an off the grid serial killer in 2021, you could probably get away with some shit, but it's, it's pretty hard to do, uh, today, you know, as a, as a regular, um, quote unquote, regular person living, you know, with technology. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a tip for any uh, people that are thinking about killing that are listening. Randomly just turn your phone off for the next couple of months before you do that crime, by the way, because at, at least then you can say, well, it used to happen. See, now now they're going to say, and they listened to Quite the Thing interview <laughs> podcast, and this was when that interview was released, and since then, they've been doing this. So, you know, there's, um, there's always a way. There's actually a, a case that I did for 48 hours where um, the woman accused of the murder the night before the murder had looked up how to get away with murder, had Googled how to commit murder and not get caught. Um, and that was in her web search history. So it's just fascinating the things that, um, you know, that, that people do and the things that come back to you. I've been hosting and producing podcasts for nearly five years now, maybe done 400, 500, 500 episodes across different platforms. My Google search history must be a red flag because I have Googled it's how to get away with murder. I've Googled that. I've Googled Mein Kampf. Yeah. The Hitler thing. I've Googled funniest deaths, most brutal deaths, and things like that. So if yeah. I'm not a criminal, but if I ever was to decide to commit a crime, people would think I was the most twisted Nazi maniac ever. Yeah. I'm a podcast host, so surely that, that could be my defense. I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's something we, you know, I, I think about my search history too. And it's, it's crazy because depending on what the case is, you know, I'm looking up all sorts of, um, you know, things about ways to kill people and weapons <laughs> and, you know, what places to hide a body and things like that. So yeah, I, I'm sure I look like a very shady character if you were to uh, get inside my, my internet history as well. Where is the best place to hide a body? Because I suppose the best place to hide a body, we haven't found it yet because the bodies haven't been found, but is it putting it in acid or is it burying it in the desert? Where's the least likely place? I'm asking for tips here, Claire. Yeah. You know, yeah. just in case, yeah. you never know. I've definitely thought about like, you know, gosh, because getting rid of the body is sort of the key thing, right? Well, big thing. And yeah. a lot of people think like chop it up, but that's so messy and it's you create so much more evidence. Um, you know, I feel like some of the better ways to do it, you know, if you can somehow, um, you know, dump it in water and have it weighted down, you know, like sort of Dexter. go the, 
Dexter, the Dexter route, right? Toss it over in the ocean. But you got to have something to weight it down or else, you know, I had a friend <laughs> in the Coast Guard and he was like, you wouldn't believe all the bloated bodies, you know, that we we pull up, you know. So it's it it definitely does not just go to the bottom by itself. But I've also always thought like the dump, like if you can get, like if you can put a body in something in a dumpster, if you can figure out like the trash schedule and like whenever the dumpster's coming to take it to the city dump, because then it would just naturally decompose with all the other trash. That's always been an interesting one to me. I seem to remember, sorry to cut over you, I seem to remember a case of a body being found at the local dump and they were trying to figure out who had murdered the person. Yeah. But it was a, I think it was a homeless man who, it was raining the night before and had slept in a dumpster and it yeah. just got put in the dump truck. Or that's what the killer wanted you to think. I may be, yeah, but I don't think they found any sort of, again, I don't know if they found blunt force trauma or stab wounds right. or anything like that. They just right. kind of were a little bit confused. This may be an urban myth as well. I get easily confused, Claire. <laughs> No, no, it, it sounds good to me. I think poisoning is another good one. You know, you could poison someone and they wouldn't have like a uh, obvious cause of death. You know, it's not like a gunshot wound or, you know, something like that. So there's there's some interesting um, interesting things that you could possibly do that would, would be very confusing, you know, but you don't want to do something too unusual because then people, you know, that, that gets their attention too, so. The Iceman, I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He was a... He was a mob hitman. He's had a film okay. made about him. And he was a serial killer because he killed 120 people. Like, he really did. Wow. But he, di he didn't have an MO. He would strangle people. He would shoot people. He would hit them with bats. He would chop them up. He would put poison in them. He would sneak up on them. Again, do you think that's a better idea rather than taking off their pants and strangling them every single time? Because then people figured out there's Panty Guy doing the doing the murders right. again, you know, like, yeah, we need yeah. to focus on that. He never had, he, he said he never killed somebody in the same way twice. That's pretty impressive, yeah, in, in a frightening way. That's that's uh, that's definitely one way to go. I feel like that's pretty rare for a killer to have that kind of discipline to kill a different way every time, but I think that is a, a probably a good strategy, yeah, to, to avoid detection and you know, one of the hardest things for the cops is, yeah, tying everything together and putting, you know, the various crimes of a serial killer, you know, proving that they were all committed by the same person. If if they're all committed a different way, that would certainly be a challenge to that. His motivation was all money. He was a contract killer. Oh, wow. And I think that's why he thought about it differently. It wasn't rage. It wasn't love. It was, if I kill this person and get away with it, I'll get paid. And then I can kill the next person and get paid again. I'm pretty sure he used to work for Henry Hill. Like these sort of guys, you know, the, the guys that were in Goodfellas and stuff like that. He was part of that community. Uh, Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. He's quite an interesting fella. Why do you think we're so obsessed? We kind of covered this earlier on, but why are we sort of obsessed by death, misfortune? Because when I knew true crime documentary comes out I phone my friend straight away and say oh, there's a Ted Bundy thing coming on you need to watch it again just psychologically a little bit strange yeah I think it's so different than what our normal daily lives are like and what our our normal experiences are that you know we're drawn to 
that outlier, that situation that's not anything like, you know, what our experiences have been. Um, and, you know, just the sort of idea that we we'll want to be scared. It's kind of fun to be scared, you know. Um, I think people enjoy um, the idea of, of thinking about these things from the safety of their own homes. You know, they're not actually in danger, but you get to to watch something scary and think about, you know, what you would do in that situation. And it's sort of a, you know, an exercise of your mind. Have you ever heard of somebody being described as happy-go-lucky that wasn't dead? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think that, that goes right there with, um, you know, she lit up a room, right? You only light up a room the after smile. you're dead, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, that's sort of uh, romanticizing the dead that we do. So, yeah. Yeah, that's more of a, a dig, let's say, at, I kind of think, lazy journalism. You know, I just think that that, will, that would turn up in a paper. Yeah. Her smile lit up a room. She was happy-go-lucky. Like, nobody, I don't think they've interviewed somebody that said that. I don't think any, that has ever come out of anybody's mouth. Like, I would never say that about any of my friends. Like, right. if my friend Colin, for example, got murdered, I would never say to the journalist that came, he was such a happy-go-lucky guy and his smile lit up a room. But I think it would end up in print media. Yeah. I've got a, real, I've got a thing about print media. I think it's dead. That, that, that's just my personal opinion coming from where I come from. Uh, print media is just, it's just sort of old-fashioned now. You don't need it. Do we need it? I know you work in, you kind of work in the industry, Claire, so I don't want to put you too much on this spot. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's all right. No, I started out, you know, in newspapers. My first, very first job in journalism, I was a community newspaper reporter um, in Dallas. But, you know, I just went where the opportunities were and, and where the stories led. So I ended up in, in TV and then, you know, in podcast as well. But um, print media has a lot of challenges. You know, I think people have gotten so accustomed to getting their their news on the internet for free that the idea of paying to have it physically in their hands or you know thrown on their doorsteps like they do in in the US um it just seems antiquated and people don't feel like they need it or want it um so it it's it's a challenge you know for sure uh at the same time those newsrooms are typically filled with you know lots of journalists working on important stories, but in a format that um, people don't really want their news in anymore. So it's, it's hard to figure out, you know, the, the way to, to get through that challenge. And I mean, I hope that print survives, um, even though I've left print media. Um, I hope they figure it out. <laughs> it would be great. I think it's better for communities when they have multiple newspapers, actually, because competition, you know, makes the um, reporting better. And I think whenever you just get one newspaper, it, it gets kind of, you know, dangerous to have a monopoly on the information. But, um, you know, it's it's a definitely a very complicated issue. And I know people have lots of, um, you know, opinions and, and personal beliefs about it. And I know in the UK that the print media can can be kind of tabloidish and they get a lot of, um, you know, heat for that. And, and, you know, perhaps rightly so I'm, I'm just not, you know, familiar with that personally. I started to distrust the print media 20 years ago, almost a day I was 16 and, um, in the 
just across the hill from me, basically, maybe a 10 minute walk, a young boy got murdered. And I knew the young boy, um, like we, we weren't friendly, um, but I knew the real situation about why he was murdered and in the, the Sun, basically, which is one of the biggest national newspapers in the UK, it was reported that it was an argument over a football. And they just made that up. Like, that was just 100% made-up nonsense. And ever since then, that day, just because I, I knew the real situation, never trusted a word that's been printed in, especially especially tabloid newspapers. I'll be honest, that's all. That's the, the main uh, vent of my anger, is, is tabloid sensationalism. You know, I don't know how, don't know how common it is in America, but over here it's just right in your face. It's, it's not ideal. In my opinion, yeah, no, that that sounds bad. Yeah, for sure. I ask everybody this question, and it is totally off piste because we've got quite serious at points. But have you ever seen a baby pigeon, Claire? I have not seen a baby pigeon, and that is um, kind of surprising, right? Where where are these fully adult pigeons coming of age? Right? We got we got to figure this out. We got to solve this mystery. Do you think who's that, murdering though? the baby pigeons? Oh. Oh, I don't know. Is that? Do you think that's a thing? Like, <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> you never know. <laughs> or are they born fully formed? That seems to be quite a common thing that people have said that they just come out of the shell and they look and disgusting huge. and dirty. Yeah. I, I feel like they got to start small somewhere. I think maybe they're just like in hiding as babies, you know, and they're getting all fattened up. Uh, in in private quarters, and then they come out when they're ready for their debut. That's it. Like to be perfectly honest, it's probably because yeah, they stay in the nest until they've been fed enough to actually fly. If you Google baby pigeon right now, you'll see this disgusting little embryo thing with the big eyes, the no hair. It must just be that they stay in their nest. But that wouldn't make for a great final question on a podcast if we actually got a little bit serious about it, Claire. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jack. I will put links to Final Days on Earth in the show notes so people can quickly click on them. Just give yourself a quick shout out before we wrap things up. Yeah, you can find uh, my podcast at finaldaysonearth.com. You can also find it on any podcast listening platform, Apple, Spotify, um, you name it. Thanks for listening, guys. We will speak to you soon. Cheers. That was a Quite the Thing media production.